Hi guys, before we go into the pre-recorded um, episode and intro for this week's episode, I just wanted to touch base on the happenings um, in our world right now. Lifting the Fog stands in solidarity with people of color and with the LGBT community. The recent and senseless loss of life in the black community are not okay and a direct reflection of a systematic change that needs to happen. The hope of this podcast has always been to support those impacted by pediatric cancer. And knowing that most of my audience are caregivers and parents, I want to acknowledge the crucial role that us parents and caregivers have. We are quite literally raising up tomorrow's leaders. And when it comes to racism and learned behaviors, one of the most effective ways to me to put an end to ideologies that are wrapped in hate and fear is to model love and a willingness to learn, understand, and empathize. I think there is hope and I think it starts within the home. It starts with what seems like small acts of kindness and conversations with our children, but grows into a foundation for young people of what's right and what's wrong. I'm a mom and I know that most of our listeners know that and I'm so far from perfect in raising my children, that's for sure, but I'm trying. And part of that means asking questions and educating myself right now, as well as my children. Parenting is hard and it takes a village. So I will be continuing to share tools and resources that I'm using to unpack these pretty heavy topics with our children um, this week and in the weeks to come before before our episodes and intros. Um, But this week I wanted to start by introducing a book that some may know, but it's a favorite of mine and, um, you know, as a teacher and as a parent. The book is called Each Kindness. Um, It's a pictures book, a children's book uh, by Jacqueline Woodson, who is a phenomenal um, African-American female author. Um, And if you've never had the conversation of race, starting with just kindness is such a great first step. Um, you know, the teacher within me knows that literature is such a good way to have conversations sort of indirectly with children about, you know, big topics like this and spark an interest with children about all different, you know, sorts of topics. So if you're looking for, you know, I talked about one book, each kindness, but if you're looking for more and certainly, um, something possibly beyond picture books. If you have older children, a really great resource is socialjusticebooks.org. They just have a library of really phenomenal uh, literature um, and arranged by age group and grade um, that's appropriate to kind of start these conversations. Um, And lastly, before we get into this week's episode, I just want to say that it's okay to not know all the answers right now. the most important thing I think is just taking the first step to make sure you're challenging yourself, um, especially you know as a white woman, to listen, learn, and try to understand and, and help our children do the same. So as always, lots of peace and love your way, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. 
So this week's episode is all about immunizations. I sat down with a practicing pediatrician to ask him a few questions and possibly debunk a couple um, misconceptions or myths about vaccines. So I think that being a non-clinical person working in healthcare, of course, becoming a parent, and then more specifically working with immune-compromised oncology and even stem cell transplant patients has expanded my curiosity and understanding when it comes to immunizations. So like I said, in this week's episode, I'm uh, joined by a practicing pediatrician. His name is Dr. Michael McKenna. Um, Dr. McKenna went to Purdue University for undergrad right here in Indiana and graduated from the IU School of Medicine in 2004, after which he completed his pediatric residency at Riley Hospital for Children um, around 2007. And then for the next about 10 years, he worked as a hospitalist, newborn nursery, and clinic physician at Riley Hospital Methodist Hospital and IU West. Um, He also was um, the Associate Program Director for the Riley Pediatric Residency and Assistant Dean of Career Mentoring at the IU School of Medicine until, as he says, he decided to switch things up and become a private practice pediatrician, again, right here in Indianapolis. Um, So, you know, in talking to Dr. McKenna, you know, firstly, I I really enjoyed this conversation. He answered so many questions. but I, it was really clear to me that it's important to him as a physician. Um, and really, the more I talk to all physicians, whether it's on this podcast or professionally, that it's it's important for them um, to really create a partnership with families where they feel like they're you know, not being told what to do for their child, but making decisions together. And so that means you know, doctors and doctors like Dr. McKenna, giving families the information they need, answering those hard questions so that parents can feel like they're making decisions that are, you know, what's in the best interest of of their child and family. So, you know, vaccines are surely a highly debated topic. Um, And now as we're all living in this COVID-19 season of life, it seems like everybody is anxiously awaiting a vaccine to come and kind of save the day or are they so you know i also want to be clear before we start this week's pod that number one this is not i repeat not an anti-vaxxer podcast just simply you know setting down asking a highly skilled expert in the field to explain immunizations to me in a way that any eighth grade biology student could understand So it's just informational. Take it or leave it. Uh, Number two, please, please, please. And this is just the disclaimer at the end of each podcast, but I'll say it in the beginning as well. Please always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider when making decisions regarding your health or the health of your loved ones. I really hope you guys enjoy this week's pod with Dr. McKenna. Super informational. He was really great to talk to. Um, And as always, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LiftingTheFog1. That's the number one. And you can email us at LiftingTheFog1 at gmail.com with questions, concerns, thoughts for future conversations. All right, y'all. Without further ado, Dr. Michael McKenna. All right. All right. Well, good morning, Dr. McKenna, and welcome to Lifting the Fog. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Of course, happy to be here today. Yeah, and so um, Dr. McKenna, you are a practicing pedi- pediatrician here in Indiana. Um, and in this week's episode, we were kind of we were hoping to talk immunizations. So um, just you know, what's in them? Why are they important? And possibly maybe even debunk some misconceptions. So, um, and I'm super interested to talk about this topic for lots of reasons. One, just as a parent and a healthcare worker that's non-clinical, but then also in this kind of season of COVID that we're in, it seems like all of society is sort of on pins and needles waiting for a vaccine and that there's no back to normal until we have this vaccine. So um, it just seems like it's a topic that's at the forefront for lots of reasons, but I'm wondering if we can just kind of start the conversation with the basics on what is a vaccine? Like my sixth grade science class way of probably describing it would be um, that it's like a weakened version of the virus that hopes to produce antibodies and cre- you know create immunity against a disease. But what's, maybe you can describe that a little better and then it, just tell us like what's actually in that little syringe. Yeah, so it, it's the first thing to think about is it really depends on whether you were vaccinating against a bacteria or whether you're va- vaccinating against a virus. So most viruses, most virus vaccines, so that's going to be things that are like measles, mumps, rubella, uh, chickenpox, the flu. Um, you know, it, it depends. And actually, they've gotten better. It used to be that you used to have to have like a live virus, a live version of the virus that is sort of weak. Now, that is how the chickenpox vaccine works. It is like it is a full chickenpox vaccine, but they've altered it so that it can't um, give you like full blown chickenpox. The other ones are just like parts of viruses. There's not too many live viruses, at least that we can here in the United States anymore, um, that are weakened. Chickenpox is kind of the main one. The, the, the flu vaccine used to, like when you would get like the nasal spray one, mm-hmm. that one would also be a weakened version of the flu that was still technically live. Um, but uh, for the most part, it's like pieces of the whatever the infectious agent is so you know certainly for bacteria that's how it's always been is it's just been like um because the way that our body works is our body identifies you know like our cells aren't just like this little like globe that are just like hanging around there's all these like proteins and sugars and other receptors and things that are on the surface that helps it communicate with its world like our cells use it to talk to other cells the bacteria just use it to like latch on the stuff or find food or you know things like that And so our immune system basically has figured out how to detect when something doesn't belong. Um, And so vaccines, the the way that it works now is that uh, what they do is they they identify certain things that are characteristic on the outside of the bacteria or outside of the virus that our body will respond to so that it will make um, an immune response that it will remember for the future. Uh, so that's basically the idea. And and that's part of why you have to have like more than one. So, you know, the chickenpox, you get it at one year and then you get a booster at like four or five or six heading into kindergarten. Um, it's because like in a lot of cases, they found that um, your immune system, like the memory gets a little, little bit weaker over time. Now, every person is a little different and there's probably some people that could just only need one, but I think a wider majority of people need two to keep that immunity sort of lifelong. Um, and so that's what it is. It's pieces and parts of 
the vex of the virus or the bacteria that are that we know our immune system will respond to um, and not just like attack and get rid of, but also like use that to remember so that if and when it comes across it again, um, it will be able to fight it off. And I'm glad you, you kind of already talked about it a, a quite a bit, but the difference between live vaccines and those that aren't, and mm-hmm. is one, I guess, how many live vaccines are we getting? Really, the chickenpox is about the only live vaccine that we have right now, at least in America. There may be some in other countries, um, but I don't I don't tend to think so. I think most of them are are not live vaccines. So, like, for example, the flu shot, people love to be like, oh, like every year when I get the flu shot, I I get the flu from it. Well, but you can't you like literally cannot get the flu from the flu shot because it's just pieces of virus. It's just like little proteins and stuff. And those aren't going to somehow miraculously like turn into a live virus. What usually ends up happening is you either went to the doctor's office and you were around other people who were sick because it's, you know, cold and flu season um, and you picked up some other thing Mm -hmm. or you picked it up from somebody in the past couple of days or who knows what or you know, there's a lot of times people say things are the flu, like the stomach flu, but that has actually nothing to do with the flu. That's a totally different virus that causes you to have vomiting. So um, you can't get the flu from the flu vaccine. Now, the chickenpox vaccine, which is one of the only live viruses we have, you actually can. I have had a patient where one of the side effects is you get um, you can get the chickenpox from it, unfortunately. Now, it's not that common. Um, I've been a pediatrician now for like, let's see, 13, 14 years. Um, and I've been out in private practice now for three years and I've had one patient that's had that happen to them. So, and I've given out a lot of chickenpox vaccines. So it doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. So also thinking about like, you know, talking about what is really in that little syringe that, that you see when your child Mm -hmm. gets a a shot. And I know that there's a, a lot of people that, um, or a lot of things out there rather that say that there's a lot of unsafe toxins inside of the actual vaccine. Can you kind of, I know that you don't develop vaccines, but can you speak to, uh, I, I'm the little bit of digging of course that I've done. And even just questions I've asked my own pediatrician, it seems like there's, you know, there are things in there that kind of almost act like preservatives to kind of maintain the integrity of the vaccine, but, um, maybe I'm off with that. So what's, What's in there besides those little particles or pieces of the the virus? Right. So yeah, you're and you you actually understand pretty well. You did a pretty good job of explaining. There's there's <laughs> there's two basic components otherwise that are in there um, that you would think about. So the one is, is the thing that you mentioned is the preservatives. You know, we gotta make sure that these aren't things that are going to fall apart in two days or become ineffective after a week. Like, you know, we've got to be able to store them so that kids can use them. Um, and I, you know, each office doesn't have to have like a lab or a super fast courier that's going to bring them for every single kid that needs them. We need to have them have some shelf life. So it's not developed and then s- given to you right away. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or like, Oh, we, you know, like, like in the olden days, we found somebody that had smallpox and we drew their blood and now we're cleaning it up and giving it to you. Like yeah. it's a, you know, it's a, we have somebody out back who's got smallpox. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we've got to have them have some kind of shelf life. Now, even then, like there is an expiration date on the shots where they only last a certain amount of time. But there are various um, things that are in there that help to preserve it, to give it a better shelf life so that it doesn't just fall apart and becomes like an ineffective 
you know, injection that we gave somebody. Um, and that's where like the mercury, the thimerosal, like thimerosal is a, is a complex mercury chemical uh, or a mercury containing substance that people were really worried about because, you know, mercury, while it looks cool in a thermometer and, you know, people used to like play with it in their hand because it's like this liquid that moves around and stuff. Um, it, it, mercury in various forms is dangerous. Um, now, this version was not dangerous, but be, because it was a different version of, of mercury, um, kind of like in the same way oxygen, like the oxygen we breathe is very safe. But oxygen, you know, it's two oxygen molecules put together. But if it's three oxygen molecules put together, that's ozone. And that's super unhealthy for people and it's super dangerous. Or, you know, think of like carbon dioxide is one carbon, two, two oxygens together. Carbon dioxide, you know, we hang around with it all the time. It's in the, it's in the environment. We breathe it in and we breathe it out and it's fine. Carbon monoxide, carbon and one, uh, carbon and one oxygen, super deadly, super dangerous. So, um, some people said, oh, mercury, that's bad. Like, you know, um, anything with mercury in there, it's bad. Why are we injecting mercury in our kids? But they had tested it a lot and it was very safe. Um, but, you know, because there were other things that were going to be better and we knew that it was something that families were a little skittish about, they actually developed different preservatives so that um, families can feel more comfortable. So really, there's no vaccines anymore that have the thimerosal in there. They haven't been in there for a while. There's still other chemicals and other substances that are in there to help preserve it. Um, but, you know, vaccines go undergo a lot, a lot, a lot of safety testing. Um, and they've done a number of studies about things like autism and other developmental disorders. And they've never found any kind of link between any particular vaccine and any of those diseases. And I'm sure, too, um, that the preservatives that are in, you know, in a vaccine probably don't even make up 1% of the actual volume of the, or, or maybe do they? Like how? Probably not. You know, that's an interesting question that I, I don't know the specific answer to, but I, I would imagine it's not like, it's not high. I would imagine it's not high, but that's, that's an interesting question, but I don't, I don't think it's particularly high. I agree. The other thing that's in there, by the way, which is, there's also things called adjuvants. Uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying they're immune system boosters. Like, oh, you know, because if I just put virus particles in there, under my skin, the the body may or may not find it. Um, and even if it does, it may not have a very strong response. So there's other things that are in there that are like uh, able to help the immune system sort of do a better job of reacting to the parts that are in there. That's especially the case for um, the bacterial immunization so things like your tetanus shot your um the various meningitis shots the pneumococcal shot those are usually pieces of the protein that are also like attached to something else like a big complex sugar molecule um and some other things like that that's also when people talk about like aluminum in the shots that's part of why the aluminum is in the shots um and certainly like if you ingest a whole bunch of aluminum that's not good for you either but like very very tiny amounts is not world you yeah. probably get more aluminum aluminum um drinking from a soda can um than you or you know making out a couple of vegetables or something you know like from a you know canned vegetables yeah. or something than you do or pre- the vaccine or preservatives from a box of goldfish but <laughs> right well yeah and you know that is the one thing i th- i talk about and that was the kind of thing when um people were talking about bpa and, and everything sure. being bpa free whether it's uh you know syringes or, or tupperware or um um, you know, baby bottles. Um, well, yeah, 
one with the 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 science on that was a little unknown of like is it really causing problems or not but i also was like hey you know your body is exposed to like a zillion other things that you don't even know about during the day um and you're not worried about that like again that's not a reason to put more and more stuff out there and in the world but yeah. at the same time like your body is pretty it's a pretty good processor. It's a pretty good detoxifier all on its own without any special help. Um, and so for the most part, like you are pretty safe from most things at most levels, you know, as much as we give a bad rap to like companies and corporations and things like that, I think for the most part, there is a lot of regulation and there is a lot of like looking at in general, like how much of contaminants, how much of other things that are in whatever products, whether it's foods or vaccines or, you know, the amoxicillin you get for your strep throat yeah. to make sure that it's pretty safe for human consumption. I also wanted to talk about, you know, the recommended, the CDC's recommended um, immunization schedule um, mm-hmm. f- for children, especially like, you know, birth to, to five. I know that, you know, get you get shots until you're 18 or even older. Uh, well, now the way that it is, you kind of get them your whole life through. You get a big pause sort of in your adult years. But even now, they've been really having a push. Uh, you mentioned that you have kids. I'm not sure when you were pregnant if you if they gave you um, or they talked about the TDAP for you. Because yeah. they've been really pushing like pregnant yeah. women and dads. My, my husband uh, and I both. Pregnant women to mm-hmm. get, yeah. Yeah. yeah, get that pertussis shot. And so they've really been pushing that, like getting it every 10 years. True. So really, it's yeah. not as much of a, you know, it doesn't happen quite as often. Like, yeah. you know, you need a tetanus booster every 10 years when you're an adult. So it's not like when you're a kid. But um, yeah, it, it, there's a big concentration of it when you're a kid. That's for sure. Yeah. And I feel like that's where a lot of questions and concerns for parents come is, you know, from birth to, to five um, and what that immunization schedule looks like. So I'm just wondering if you can talk to, um, like, how did the CDC come up with that schedule? I'm sure that there was like a, a you know a lot of research that went into how many vaccines we're giving at once and why we're giving these ones first. Or um, can you talk to the schedule and you know why it's recommended that that you get the vaccines when you get them? For sure, yeah. Well, it's a common, and so this is interesting because it's it's really different across the world. So I certainly haven't seen a patient from every single country in the world, but I've I've had enough from other countries um, where they brought their vaccines record vaccine records. Where every country does it a little bit different, and that gets to why each country's schedule is the way it is. Which is part of it is prevalence of whatever is around. So, you know, there's some things that are pretty common that everybody's trying to vaccinate against. So things like polio, tetanus, hepatitis B, but then there's a few other like meningitis vaccines. Like we don't give the meningitis vaccine for, um, like there's a type of meningitis that you get when you're more like a teenager or a young person, um, at least here in America, like the, the meningococcal vaccine. That's the one you get when you're 11 and 16. Um, years old. But in other countries, like in the Middle East, for example, they're getting that when they're one or one and a half because it's a lot more prevalent in sort of some sub-Saharan African, sort of that big like tropical strip, um, uh, or, you know, like, like on both sides of the equator kind of thing, where a little more south of where we are here in America. Um, and so some of it is you have to look at your own country's disease prevalence, and that's part of it. So like in, you know, the, a lot of the Asian countries, there's some other um viruses that they vaccinate against because they're much more prevalent in Asia than they are here um, 
one of them is called like Japanese encephalitis virus. Like we don't really see that very much here in the United States or in, in the West for that matter, but it's, it's pretty common in, you know, certainly Japan, but in, in other sort of Asian countries. So some of it is based on what do you see in your own country? What do you see in your own region that you had to be protected against? Um, and that sort of changes the order. Um, but a lot of it is just functional, like what makes sense for what you're trying to protect against and, and who you're trying to protect. So for example, Tetanus, you're worried about tetanus your whole life long. Now, you might say to yourself, like, what's the big deal about tetanus? Like, I've never heard of anybody having tetanus. Well, that's because, uh, one, our society is a lot cleaner than it used to be. And two, people get the vaccine, you know. Mm -hmm. So you probably, I've never heard of anybody that actually had tetanus. Uh, you know, tetanus is where it's a bacterial infection where the, the, the spores from it actually, uh, the, and the toxins from it actually cause all your, like, literally all of your muscles to stiffen up and you... You can't talk. Your jaw locks up and eventually you even stop breathing. And so the problem is, you might say, well, it's a bacteria. Like, we've got antibiotics. It'll be fine. The problem is for, and this is the reason why we do some of our vaccines is, yes, your body will come up with an immune response. But the problem is it's too late. By the time your body figures out what's going on, it's it's too late to, to make sure that you're safe. And so, you you know, all your muscles are already clenched up and you can't breathe because the muscles that you use to breathe are frozen as well. So uh, a lot of the things that we do are either, you know, like, so tetanus, we're trying to give you lifelong immunity and we start when you're young. Um, things like polio, polio is devastating. Um, now, it, people don't see it anymore because polio has been eradicated in most of the world. There's still a few countries where it exists. Um, I think it's like Pakistan and Syria and there's a few, there's a few countries. There's like three, there's not that many left where polio is still um, around, but for the most part, it's been eradicated because it's so awful. It's, it's a very debilitating disease that causes sort of muscle wasting and, and people being on iron lungs because they can't breathe, you know, themselves, they need a machine to help them breathe and being, you know, decapacitated and and needing to have a, a life, um, being pushed around in a wheelchair and, and not even just that they can't walk, but they can't do a lot of things with any of their muscles because they've been so wasted away. Um, and so that we need to make sure you get early because if, one, so that, you know, you don't get it when you're young, but two, um, we want to make sure that you get it starting early so that we don't miss anybody, you know, because mm-hmm. for the most part, like if you think about it, who are the people that families mostly make sure gets medical care? It's kids, mm-hmm. young kids babies for a lot of reasons you know they're new parents and they want to make sure that they're doing things the right way they have a four-year-old and they're kind of not sleeping well or they're misbehaving and i have some questions about that whereas a lot of times teenagers you know i certainly when i was a young adult i went to a doctor for something when i was 18 and then uh when i finally was graduated from residency i think 10 15 years later i finally (laughs) like oh yeah i should get a doctor and go to the doctor you know uh young men are, are particularly um bad at going to the doctor um and so that's also part of it, too, is if we're going to catch people, we're going to catch people when they're young. Yeah. Um, and then a few things. Sorry, I, I just I could talk about this all day. No, you know, I love there's it. There's a few things that are are not bad to get when you're a kid. So think like the reason like that chicken pox vaccine exists. You know, I don't know. You're probably young enough that you didn't have chicken pox. You probably had the vaccine. I had but like it. I had chicken pox when I was a kid. The vaccine or you had the disease. I had chicken pox. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 30. Oh, okay. I'm 33. So. so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you're still younger than me, though. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> um, so, 
you know, the chicken pox itself, like, you know, we both had it. Like, I barely, I remember that I had it, but it wasn't bad. It was, you know, I had a fever. I remember being kind of itchy, but it wasn't that bad. If you get chicken pox as a kid, you're right. It's not that bad. The problem is not as much as we think every kid you knew got chicken pox, not every kid actually got chicken pox. And there were some people that made it through to adulthood that never had chicken pox, which is a problem for two reasons. One, if you are pregnant and you get, and you never had chicken pox and you get chicken pox, it's very bad for the developing baby. Um, and so we, they really need to make sure um, that they are protected. So that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is, in general, getting chicken pox as adult is not fun. It's it's really bad. It's miserable. And it's not just because you're super itchy. There's a higher likelihood of complications and things like that. So there's a double reason why we want to make sure everybody gets the chicken pox vaccine and they get it when they're young so that we don't have to worry about, hey, did you get chicken pox? Did you not? Are you going to be pregnant and you're going to be at risk? Um, same thing with things like rubella. Rubella is even worse for, uh, you know, one, it's not as, as common as um, the chicken pox. And that's also partly because the vaccine has been around a lot longer. Um, but two, that's even more devastating for a developing fetus than the chicken pox. So, um, that was really, that really is mainly for, um, making sure that we protect developing fetuses in the future. Um, and then that being said, the other thing with chicken pox is, you know, again, you, you and I, we both had it. We, we knew a bunch of our friends and our, you know, siblings and so forth that had it. I don't, I never realized that people, even as kids can get hospitalized one in a hundred thousand kids, um, which is not, you know, it's not like it's, it's that super rare. I mean, given that there's, you know, 350 million people in the country and they were all kids at some point, Mm -hmm. that's a good number of people who ended up having some kind of horrible inflammation of the brain because of their chicken pox. Measles is the same way, um, where you can have some really horrible side, not side effects, but some horrible, like adverse um, reactions. Yeah. Adverse, adverse reactions to it that most people don't have, but enough do that it's that's really those are the reasons why we really did the chicken pox vaccine so when people come to my office and say like oh it's just the chicken pox that's the kind of stuff that i talk about um and that's why we do it early you know a lot of the things we do early because a we know we have an audience of people who are going to actually come to the doctor um and two we want to make sure they're protected against these things early um i also read somewhere that too it was you know taken into consideration like you know, what's the minimal amount of times that a family has to come to the doctor? Because if you think about um, having a, you know, any parent that has a young child that gets vaccinated, it's every three months for the first 18 months, right? Um, so I had read that that was kind of taken into consideration to all the different types of family dynamics and family types and accessibility to even getting to the doctor. Like what's the um, minimal amount of times that families will have to come into the doctor's office to make sure that kids aren't missing shots. Um, but that certainly it's been studied and it, there's a lot of research that went into, you know, you know, between birth and three months, we'd like them to have X, Y, and Z. Is that true? Well, so as best I know, it's really based on more around the science of when like making sure that they, that you have the best immune response to the vaccine. Um, and so, you know, like there's a lot of like viral ones, like hepatitis B um, and like the HPV shot, even though you give it like the HPV vaccine, the Gardasil, you get that when you're a teen or a preteen, mm-hmm. hepatitis B, you get that at birth. But they, they have a very similar structure that, that they've looked at to say like, this is when you, this is how you get your best immune response. And it's, 
you know, you get it at like the time you get it and then you get it like a month later and then you have to get the third one like four months after the second one and six months after the first one. Like yeah. that's all really based on, you know, looking at what was the best way um, to make sure that, you know, a, a high percentage of people have a good immune response to the vaccine. Now, it is true that they then built the well child check schedule around the vaccine schedule. Okay, um, sure. And so, you know, and so, and, and whether it was just fortuitous or whether um, they also kind of planned this together, certainly when you think about development of children, um, it also makes sense that you see them pretty frequently in that first year and then not as much, you know, mm -hmm. going forward just from a development standpoint. Mm -hmm. Because if you think of like how much a baby changes from being a newborn to being two months to being six months, that is some rapid change. I mean, you go from a baby who literally can't do anything um, when they're born to like at six months old, like some of them are sitting up and they recognize their parents and they're making noises and mm -hmm. they're reaching out for stuff. Like they're doing a lot of things like that's a big change. Um, whereas like, if you think of the difference between, yes, are there some <clears throat> temperamental differences between like a three-year-old and a three and a half year old? Maybe, but it goes a lot slower. So like you don't, you know, you, so it kind of goes hand in hand, like the science of the vaccines would say, you know, you need them at these intervals to be able to make sure that you have a really good immune response, but you also have it where you get a lot of visits early on because that's when so much rapid development is happening yeah. that we need to sort of make sure is proceeding in some sort of um, forward moving manner. What do, you, what do you say to parents that want to deviate from the recommended schedule? So maybe a concern for them would be that, you know, this is too overwhelming for my child's immune system. I don't know how I feel about them getting, um, you know, five shots in one day. What, what would you say to that? So I really see myself as a tool for the families to use. And, and the AAP would back that up. You know, they, they really want, as much as there's some, there are some pediatricians out there who say, hey, it's this way or no way. Um, sure. Vaccines or not. Like, this is the schedule, like it or not. But uh, I think the AAP also wants to make sure that all children are protected and all children are sort of watched over, cared for, taken care of. And that means having a medical home, even for children who are unvaccinated, families who don't feel comfortable vaccinating their children. So um, I try to really work with the families, accommodate them. You know, I, I don't give them a free pass. I still push back at them a little bit. And, and even up front, I'll tell my families who say they don't want to vaccinate at all, I'll say, hey, I'm going to bring this up every time. Um, and, you know, because I think it's important, I'm not going to beat you up about it. I'm not going to hit you over the head with it. I'm not going to yell at you, but I am going to bring it up because I think it's important. And, and they usually, um, they're very accepting of that. And, and I haven't had any families who have said, oh, okay, well, fine, we're, we're out. Like, I can't even have you talking about it. You know, because I think partly, like, even the families that don't want to vaccinate their kids that still actually, you know, come to see a physician. Um, they still want to make sure their kids are, are well taken care of and they still want to make sure their kids are healthy. And I think they appreciate the fact that someone is going to um, be thoughtful and, and, and work with them. So, you know, I think the families who wouldn't want to tolerate even my talking about it would already probably not even walk through the door. But, um, you know, so like there are a few people, a few books, uh, authors and uh, physicians and so forth who have come up with like various alternate schedules. Uh, but to be honest, like I haven't had too many people who do that, who come in with like, this is our plan. Mm -hmm. More often it's just like, oh, can we like do our own thing? And we just kind of like 
fake until we make it. Yeah. Um, especially because there is sort of, there's the, the traditional schedule and then there is a catch-up schedule um, for people who haven't been vaccinated for, you know, either they um, moved around a lot or they um, couldn't afford to come to care or they just sort of got lost in the system or for various reasons, they just didn't come to the doctor. There's also a way that you don't, like, you know, I'm five and I've had like three vaccines. There's a way to like, um, for, for a lot of them that you can kind of um, skip over a few, okay, you can consolidate this here, move this around there. Sure. Um, and so some of it, we take advantage of that, knowing that there's a few places that we can make some adjustments if we need to when they do their alternate schedule. So I say, okay, you know, and I also tell people, okay, these are the things that I find the most important. Like, if you don't want to vaccinate against this right now, fine, I can live with that. We'll take care of that later. But these are the things, you know, like... Um, the Prevnar, the, the pneumococcal vaccine, that's something that, you know, if you're over age five and you never got it, like, we're not going to give it to you because it is so important about taking care of ear infections and pneumonias and meningitis when you're a baby, especially, or someone who's under age five, mm-hmm. that for the most part, like, that's why it's really important to get it then. If you haven't gotten it, okay, fine. So I'm really going to push for that when they're a baby, as opposed to like, um, you know, if they want to wait on the hepatitis B, you know, if mom didn't have hepatitis B, like a, she's not a chronic hepatitis B yeah. carrier when she's pregnant, then I'm like, okay, the likelihood that you're going to get hepatitis B when you're a baby is pretty low. We'll deal with that in the future. But I really want to focus on uh, the HIB, which is another, like, um, it causes this old throat infection that we don't see anymore because of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, or it causes some meningitis or it causes some ear infections, things that like babies and toddlers will get. Um, and I'm like, we got to work on this now because, you know, if we wait till they're five, it's useless at that point. We, yeah. you know, you're not getting the benefit from it. So for example, my daughter's 19 months. So her last round, um, and we had to cancel her last appointment because of COVID, but her last round of shots was yeah. at 15 months. And I think she had five shots. Is that overwhelming to her immune system to have three, four, five shots at one time? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, some of that they've also studied and they've looked at, you know, cause, and part of speaking of coronavirus, that's when people are like, why is it going to take a year or a year and a half to make a vaccine? Shouldn't we be able to do this faster? Well, and, and that's, Part of it is a good reflection of like why we know that vaccines are safe is because we don't just test, does this work? We also test, is it safe? And actually that's the, like, that's really what they're testing right now is like, if we give this to people, are they okay? You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there is a lot of work that goes into, and they test a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of people to make sure that it's safe for human consumption. And so you know, I tell people, kind of like we were talking about before, about the, the contaminants in the world and the various chemicals and whatever, your body sees a whole lot of antigens every day, you know, whether it's breathing in the air or when your kid is digging in the dirt or just from food you eat. Like, there's so many things that their immune system comes across that the extra four or five that they're going to see with that vaccine pales in comparison to what their body sort of is scanning and finding on a daily basis. So they're going to be pretty safe. Your immune system is very strong. It's very robust. It's very sophisticated. Um, it is going to easily be able to handle um, five antigens at a time, six antigens at a time. And- or even like the newborns, like the two, four, six months, you get eight. You get, you know, it's not eight pokes, but it's eight different things that you are responding to. Uh, you know, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what you, your immune system sees on a daily basis. So even at birth, because, right, I think right at birth, they give you shots before you leave the hospital. A few, right? 
Correct. So yeah. you get a you get a hepatitis B shot uh, at birth. The other things are not uh, vaccines. So you get the three things you get at birth. The one thing is hepatitis B. So that is a vaccine. Mm-hmm. The other thing you get is the vitamin K. Uh, uh, yeah. Vitamin K is is a vitamin that is important for clotting your blood. Um, we don't do a good job as humans of storing it anywhere. We we basically have bacteria in our gut that kind of process it and make it for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get it a teeny bit from like food that you eat, but not much. Um, and the thing is, uh, babies are born and they're totally sterile. Like you and I, like we have like trillions of like, you know, not to freak you out today or the rest of the listening audience, mm-hmm. but we have like trillions of bacteria that live inside of our gut right now. Mm-hmm. We don't bother them. They don't bother us. They actually help us by processing some things. Um, they help us protect from other, um, you know, other pathogens and bad bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good that they're there. They help us out. For example, they produce our vitamin K supply. But babies are born sterile. They have zero bacteria inside their gut when they're born. Um, and so they are susceptible to being able to bleed because they don't have any, uh, they have very minimal vitamin K in their body. So we give them a vitamin K shot so that they can not have this horrible disease called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn because they don't have any vitamin K. The third thing that they get is that they get the eye goop um, that's erythromycin to help prevent some um, conjunctivitis. So that you only get one shot, but you do get three medicines, three treatments when you're born. But even at birth and, you know, one month, three months, you're you're not too young or your immune system is not too, I guess, weak to be receiving vaccines, correct? Your, your correct. body can actually, handle so, it. Actually, so, you know, when, you know, when... When I was a resident in the sort of the middle 2000s, you know, we would learn about things like, you know, babies getting uh, meningitis and and other sort of horrible, overwhelming bacterial infections. And that still unfortunately still happens. But it is way less than even like the 70s or the 80s. Like if you talk to people, pediatricians or pediatricians, because we're talking about babies who were trained in like the 70s and the 80s, a majority of what their residency, you know, like, hands-on in the hospital experience was was like a significant portion of it was like babies who had meningitis like doing lumbar punctures all the time testing treating etc etc and that's the reason why i saw barely any was because of the vaccines that we give when they're newborns like they these some of these diseases were so um devastating and deadly and problematic for newborns that um because, I mean, their immune system's okay when they're born, but it's, you know, it certainly hasn't seen anything. It's not, um, it, it doesn't know anything. Like, it's got to learn. And so we, you know, the vaccines really help to um, soften that learning curve, essentially, so that we can help it be prepared for some things that might come across to help protect them. So their immune system works. It's fine. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's functioning. But the problem is it hasn't seen anything. It doesn't know anything. It's got to learn. Um, and what we don't want to have happen is that in the process of it trying to learn, um, something bad happens. So, um, I don't worry about the baby's immune system, um, be, being exposed to those vaccines. I am thankful that we are helping the baby's immune system to learn faster so it can stay safe. Yeah. And, what, and we've definitely seen that over the course of the past, even just 20, 30 years. Yeah. And what do you say to parents that say, gosh, you know, the last um, well child check, they got, you know, three or four vaccines and they had a fever and they were so puny um, and, you know, nervous about vaccines inducing a fever. What what do you say to that? 
Well, I do say that that is probable, especially the younger that you are, the more likely you are to get a fever. And part of that is the immune system doing its job. You know, fever is a little bit therapeutic in general. Like when you get an infection, there is some some ability of the fact that your the body your body's temperature is different than normal that is throwing off the growth and development of whatever pathogen you are currently infected with. Uh, but a lot of it is honestly just a side effect. It's a side effect to the chemicals that your immune system is putting out to tell the rest of the, the troops, hey, come, we got something going on. Like, mm-hmm. um, And so it's more of a side effect than anything. So to be honest, it's a good sign that your immune system is doing its job. Um, and so what I tell people is, one, I prepare them for it and say, hey, this, these are the things that might happen. Um, and the biggest things I usually talk about are fever. Um, and then I also tell families, you know, like, usually it's whether it's an illness or whether it's a vaccine, it's really not what's going on that's causing your kid to feel miserable. The fever is really what's having your kid be miserable. Like, cause you've probably seen this too. I know I've seen it in my kids and my kids are almost 15 and 10. Um, I can't tell you, I had a number of times when I would come home from work because I'd pick them up at, you know, at the aftercare or from school and they had had a fever, get them home, give them some ibuprofen. And two hours later, they're like, Hey dad, can we play outside? Can we do this? And I'm like, yes, you know, because kids are so, they look miserable when they have a fever and they are great when they don't have a fever. Well, even as Um, an adult, when I have a fever, I mean, there's nothing worse. You just feel crummy. For sure. Oh, totally. For sure. So, you know, I try to tell them one, I try to prepare them ahead of time of saying, Hey, this is something that is probably going to happen. Um, and two, I think, honestly, a lot of parents, like that first one, they're really nervous about. Uh, and then, I, you know, I saw a couple of two months old, two month olds this week and they were, you know, they were usually nervous. I usually tell them, honestly, it's probably going to be worse for you than it's going to be for mm-hmm. them. Some of the babies cry, a surprising number of the babies don't really cry or they kind of make a peep and then they fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the parents find that actually the baby's tolerated pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, they may get a fever. They may get a funny little like pink rash around the vaccine spot. Um, and again, that's the immune system doing its job. The biggest thing that I usually hear as a surprise, and and I've really been trying to tell my families more and more that they're going to find this, is they'll be like, hey, like for like a, oh, two weeks or three weeks afterwards, I felt over my baby's thighs and they had this weird lump there. And I'm like, yep, that's the result of the immune system doing its job. Like eventually it will go away, but it's just, you know, all of the all of those immune cells came to that one area where the fluid was. And that's just the result of the immune response. It'll go away eventually. But, um, you know, it's it's the same thing like when you get a mosquito bite and it's all like bumpy there. Part of that is because your body responded and said, like, we don't like what's going on. And it got all inflamed. But it'll go away eventually. And I I had, you know, written down that I did want to ask you because I've heard this before from uh, family and friends that are, I don't want to necessarily say anti-vaxxers, um, perhaps maybe skeptical or critical and asking yeah. questions about, um, you know, that the United States vaccinates kids at higher rates, but you kind of, um, or has, a, I guess, a more aggressive um, vaccination schedule. But I think you covered that pretty well when earlier we talked about that just, um, you know, different regions of the world need to immunize children um, with different vaccines and at different rates because of the, you know, region of the world that they live in and what the risks look like. Um, But certainly that there's a lot of research and data that goes into um, why our kids are on the schedule that they, that they are on. So I feel like you you answered that pretty well. I don't know if we've anything else to cover there, but 
I've heard the other that thing one that a lot. Plays into that a teeny bit is there are for whatever reasons there are slightly different products around which I think you know the hard part when we see them in the office is is one it's products that we're not sure what they are and two it's in a foreign language which is a little problematic sometimes we've done a lot of internet searching and I think we've we've mostly figured it out but certainly the other thing about foreign countries is they a lot of times have slightly different products um, sure. that have more or less less things combined together like we. Here in the United States, we have some combined vaccines, like the the Pediarix or the Penticel is like the biggest one. That's one of the ones that the newborns will get. And it's got, you know, as uh, as the Penta in the name would suggest, it's got five different things. It's got, you know, hepatitis B. Well, actually, it depends on which brand you use. But the ones that they both have is polio, um, the um, tetanus, whooping cough, diphtheria. And then there's one brand that has hepatitis B in it. There's a different brand that has uh, the Hib in it which it's, that's short for Haemophilus influenza B. It, it's poorly named. It's a bacteria. It has nothing to do with the flu, but it sounds like the flu. It's, it actually is more confusing than helpful, but that's, I didn't come up with the name. <laughs> um, and so like, that's really the, like we have a couple other combo products that like four-year-olds will get, or, you know, there's a combined measles, mumps, rubella with the chicken pox or without the chicken pox. But for the most part, like we don't have a ton of like super combined vaccines. We have some, but not a ton. Like a lot of other countries, they have a thing. They have the, this hexa product that has like six things in it. Like, and it's stuff that I was like, Oh, like that's not a combination of stuff that we use. But and some of it is the way that their prevalences are. They throw different things together. You know, we have a separate vaccine for hepatitis B um, versus for hepatitis A. Hepatitis B, you know, we, we vaccinate people for that, for example, because um, we don't want people to be chronic carriers because we don't really, and we don't want pregnant women to pass it along to their fetuses. It's not necessarily bad for fetal development, but it is unfortunately uh, a great way for someone to get hepatitis B as a disease is to be born with your mom having it and having it passed along to you um, through the birth process. So um, that's another big reason why we do hepatitis B. But hepatitis A, you know, like if you ever hear of people talking about there's an outbreak of hepatitis in the in the city, whatever city you live in, um, it, it's from, it's probably hepatitis A, which is passed. It's one of those like uh, what we would call fecal oral. It's like dirty hands, dirty bottoms, yeah. um, and it's passed through bad food. Um, we use that, like we vaccinated against that, mostly to protect, like you know, to make sure our, our people who you know, because almost everybody works in food service at some point. I know, like my first like five or six jobs as a mm-hmm. as a young person were working in some kind of like food service area. Um, so it's a way to sort of protect the um, the public at large um, from from something like that. But like we have a separate vaccine for that, that, you know, we give hepatitis B in the combo product in, you know, in two months, four months, six months, we give hepatitis A. We used to actually, we started out giving it to teenagers. And then in the past seven or eight years, we've moved to give it to uh, when you're one and then when you're 18 months. Um, but like in a lot of foreign countries, especially in like Europe, they have like this combined hep B, hep A product. Um, and, and some of why the differences of what it looks like of how many pokes you get in a visit is because for whatever reason in Europe, they've approved different products so that they have a different amount that they give. Maybe they give more consolidated than we give or less or, you know, depending on what country. You're in. And I know, you know, we just talked a little bit earlier about, you know, side effects from the vaccine. So whether that's a fever or a rash or a bump where the the, um, injection site was um, for the shot. But what about talking about, um, you you know, harm versus reward when it comes to vaccinations and like adverse reactions? And certainly I think 
Um, so my son is four. So in the past, you know, I guess five years ago, um, when I really started to think about, geez, should I be questioning immunizing my child? Should I be researching this? Do um, you know what kind of questions do I need to ask my pediatrician? And um, certainly, we'd probably be remiss to not talk about you know the link between or what people discuss the link to be between autism and vaccines. So um, can you talk about that? And can you talk about just adverse reactions to vaccines and, and kind of, you know, harm versus re- reward in immunizing your children? Sure, of course. So I'll talk about autism specifically first, and then I'm going to get into some other sort of adverse reaction um, kind of side effect problems. We'll talk about that afterwards. Yeah. So the big thing with autism and, you know, and to be honest, as um, parent, I can understand why back in the, you know, like the eighties and the early nineties and the mid nineties, when sort of this was when, when autism was becoming certainly something that was more made aware of and sort of noticed and diagnosed and sort of more, um, formally identified. Um, it, to be honest, it makes a lot of logical sense why one would think, oh, the vaccines cause this, um, because when you look at the, the progression of, of a child who ends up getting diagnosed with autism, oftentimes that whole first year of life, they look like any other baby. Mm-hmm. They are developing fine. They're picking mm-hmm. up new skills. They're, they go from laying there to rolling over to sitting to standing, and they mm-hmm. do all that. Um, and then um, they go for their one-year visit, and they get their measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Um, and then, but they're doing great. They get a clean bill of health. The doctor's like, oh, you're great. Like, things are wonderful. Your baby's awesome. Like, congratulations, you know, (laughs) go forth and enjoy. And then all of a sudden, things aren't okay. You know, your child was supposed to start speaking and they don't. Um, Your child was supposed to start engaging with you more and, you know, things like looking you in the eye, coming and get your attention, wanting to sit there and read books with you, all these other uh, things that they're not doing. Mm -hmm. And, Things were fine up until that one-year visit, and now they're not. And so what happened at that one-year visit? He's a muscle relaxing. Um, so it, it makes sense that people sort of, like, looked for that as a possibility. Like, I think, you know, logically that makes sense, and sort of just time-wise that makes sense. The thing is, as we have been looking at this more and more, we've actually, like, one, there have been plenty of studies that looked at, immune, like, rates of autism diagnosis with, um, immunization giving, and there's been no correlation. There have been like more studies that you can count that have sort of um, said that that is not a connection. And not only that, but the one there was a paper that was published in I can't in like the mid '90s or something like that that um, first identified a link, and they actually that paper was retracted because the the scientific um, process that the the doctor, the main lead doctor, the author of that, the scientist went through was pretty illegitimate and was pretty um uh inhumane and it was just uh, unethical sorry the word i'm looking for yeah. like, the, the process that he went and the ways that he did it and he got like sneaky samples and it was a very like limited sample like it was it was a lot of like uh dirty science in there and so they mm-hmm. they retracted that paper um and so but that the science, the science of the vaccines, and looking at that aside, like the other thing that we have noticed as we have researched and and looked into autism more is there actually are more. They're subtle, but there are some things from a developmental standpoint that if you really look when they're six months old, when they're nine month old, that you can start to see like oh something is 
something is off. It's, it's, it's subtle. It's not very obvious, but it is, there are subtle signs that they're already not developing quite in the way that a lot of other kids are so that it's, it does seem like it's more something of like, uh, it's to show you that it wasn't just like, boom, it happened. Like at one, they were fine until they were a year old, but like there was something going from a lot longer than that to say like, Oh, there were some subtle signs, you know, in the six month, nine month, you know, 10 month period to say, Oh, something was going on. Or even at the one year visit to say, Oh, something was going on. Um, and so that's kind of a double, a double look at sort of autism of like, not only have they looked at the vaccine specifically, but even when you look at the natural progression of, of someone who's been diagnosed with autism, Oftentimes, um, there are some subtle delays even, you know, before the uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was given. Now, when it comes to um, when it comes to just adverse reactions in general, I do tell families, I will say, you know, there are a few things that there are a few bad reactions that will happen. You will hear of people who, you know, they got a vaccine and their child became neurologically devastated afterwards. And they, they are not lying. They are not making that up. They're not, um, you know, some kind of conspiracy theory. They're not some kind of deep fake or, or something where they made it up to try and like beat against the vaccine industry. Uh, you know, just like any medicine, there are times where, you know, individual, something about your immune system, something about your mm -hmm. genetic makeup, something about who this individual was, mm -hmm. they were going to react poorly to something that was in the vaccine. And it's horrible and it's awful. Um, it is not particularly common. It's it's really pretty rare. It's, a, you know, it's one in a million. It's it's one in hundreds of thousands. It's it's not very common. It's, it's very rare. But it does happen. Um you know, and, and what I, I will be upfront tell my families, you know, when they ask about stuff like that, I will say, you know, um, it's pretty rare. It's one in a million. Now, for the 999,999, that's pretty great. For that one, that is awful. And, and there's no getting around that. And there are processes and there are, um, you know, there are funds and there are um, committees and there are things. There are things that are out there to help support families that have that happen to them. There are things that are out there to um, help mitigate the problems and, and watch over some of those things. Um, but the vast majority of kids do just find the vaccines. There are a very tiny, minuscule population that people can have a bad reaction, and that, that can happen. But that, you know, I could walk out in the street and have a heart attack. I could walk out and get hit by a bus. Like, bad things do happen all the time, which is not to minimize the fact that bad thing, you know, the, how tragic and, and, and awful that is when something bad does happen. Um, but for the vast majority of people, they do just fine. Um, and so it becomes one of those discussions of, you know, I think certainly the likelihood of the likelihood of suffering the devastating effects of polio or pneumococcal meningitis uh, to me is much worse than the likelihood that you're going to suffer an adverse vaccine reaction. And that's sort of the stuff that I try to get into. You know, I try to talk about and again, it's hard. And, and honestly, this gets into why a lot of families uh, are not a lot, but why there is a percentage of people who are skeptical of vaccines. It's because, you know, we don't see what polio looks like anymore. You know, they did a like a survey of, of people in countries around the world. And and what they found is, you know, in the some of the countries that had the highest vaccine um, 
is not the right way to non-skepticism like vaccine belief like sure. belief that vaccines are safe yeah. was bangladesh was like number one like 98 percent of the people that they surveyed in bangladesh felt like vaccines were safe and part of that is and egypt was another one that was super high and part of that is because those were countries that had very high rates of some of these infectious diseases that were being prevented with the vaccine so there is something to be said for when you know the vaccines do so well that people forget what it was like to have polio when people don't see what it was like when your child had diphtheria which is you know a little house of the prairie type disease you know you don't hear about that except for like old civil war stories and old, old like you know 1800s turn of the century diseases um you know when you don't realize how devastating and horrible those diseases are and how relatively common those were um it becomes a like well why are we doing this this isn't that important but yeah. um you know that's the thing that i try to emphasize is is th- these things are are awful and devastating and a whole lot more common than than the the pretty rare adverse events that happen from vaccine administration it's kind of interesting that right now we're living in a world without one vaccine and we're seeing right. how it's impacting us in all aspects of life. Um, so, and I would have to imagine, of course, I'm not a doctor, but I would have to imagine being a physician is just constantly outweighing risk versus reward. And um, there's science isn't perfect. You'll never know. I mean, if you prescribe a child, amoxicillin for you know whatever ailment you don't 100 percent know what's going to happen but it's just weighing out you know we we believe and with research and data that immunizing children at you know at these rates and and on the schedule works and is beneficial for not only them but society as a whole um and i'm wondering also if we can talk about I mean, can you speak to how you feel like overall society is impacted by readily available um, and rec- recommended immunizations? And then, you know, kind of also herd immunity and, and what is that? But yeah. Well, I will say that you are a very wise person because that honestly, oh. you summed it. I hadn't even thought of it that way, but you uh, that you summed it or summarized it pretty perfectly. That is a lot of what being a doctor is, is really like figuring out like, is this worth the downside because you know as i would say with like when i give people amoxicillin i tell people you know um like flip a coin 50 percent of kids are going to have horrible diarrhea when they get amoxicillin that's just the way it is but like um you, you know it, but i am also like 99 percent sure that it's going to take care of this strep throat ear infection pneumonia and so you know while diarrhea is not fun um pneumonia is a whole lot worse you know mm-hmm. and so it is balancing that kind of stuff about and there are plenty of times where you know i think we like to make it look like and tv especially you know being a doctor is everything is full of certainty like you do this one test and you definitively have this but to yeah. be honest like almost every test like it can have false positives it can have false negatives like you can it, it's not just like oh you do this like you definitely have like the strep test for example it's really good but like there have been times I've done a strep test on a kid and it came up positive and then like they were still like I gave them the medicine and they were still they were still not great like five days later and I was like that's you know what are we going to do with that how are we going to negotiate like what's really going on do I need to do more testing do I not is it worth it and so yeah that's totally you know whether it's vaccines or whether it's treating stuff or whether it's what do we do about your sore ankle you know like there's a lot of a like what's the benefit what's the risk what how do we um, decide and I think that's you know, we've gotten into a point in, in our society, which is where we really try to partner 
and try to work together with families. You know, it used to be like, whatever the doctor said, that's what they do. And, you know, that's why, you know, my parents, your parents, you know, they probably didn't question the vaccines, mostly because, and some of it is because they had probably knew people that had polio and knew people that had a yeah. bad measles and a bad smallpox. And they, like they didn't have but social media or the internet and were right. WebMD doctors themselves. Anyways, keep going. <laughs> exactly. No, and some of it also was the fact that it was a much more, you know, paternalistic society when, mm-hmm. you know, like the professional says this, so I'm going to do that. Why would mm-hmm. I doubt that? You know, um, and which, you know, I think, you know, some days as a doctor, I'm like, man, I wish people would just listen to what I say. But to be honest, uh, I'm glad that we have really gotten into more of like patient family autonomy where we're really making these decisions together because to be honest there were plenty of doctors who would abuse that and do things that didn't you know i can name hundreds of examples whether it's you know the tuskegee um where where there were doctors that were testing the african-american community down south for like they had a cure for syphilis and they didn't give it to them because they just wanted to see what happens because that's science like there are plenty of cases where that paternalistic attitude went definitely the wrong way yeah um and so i'm glad that we've gotten to a point where we can really make it a partnership between the doctor and the family. And certainly that makes things a little muddier. It makes things a little more complicated, but I think it's worth it so that families can have buy-in families can feel like they are doing what they feel is best for their family. Um, and they have stakes in the decision. And, and it's, I think it's good to partner with that so we can do that together. Um, I and think now it also totally yeah. off in a different direction. So I don't remember the rest of what you wanted me to cover. <laughs> well, I just also want to say too, I think that it builds so much trust because being a parent is so scary. The first time you do it, you just feel like I remember leaving the hospital with my son and being like, I don't think this is it. Like you're just letting me leave with this human and I have to like, you know, raise him and hopefully turn him into a good person and keep him alive. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's super intimidating. Um, and I remember, um, I just, I love our pediatrician and I remember, you know, that first, first few well child checks and I just felt like I had created such a partner in raising my child. I could ask her questions and I asked her questions that probably now five years into parenthood, I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. I even (laughs) asked those things, but I asked her those things and she met me with total honesty, um, and vulnerability and we were able to have good conversations where she answered a lot of the questions that you answered today on concerns and worries that I had about, you know, everything from vaccines to even just antibiotics and I think it's so important because I think it builds a a strong relationship where there's trust Um, and it's not like this system where I feel like I just have to do everything, you know, that that my doctor says because they're the doctor and I can't question it. I think there's a difference between questioning the medical community and asking questions and then thinking that we're experts because I'm certainly not medically trained. Um, So I'm not an expert and I can read all of the Google articles that I want to, but um, you know, you've done quite a bit of training and this is your area of expertise. And, you know, I would hope that families can have great conversations, but at the end of the day, really value what their physicians have to say as you know, the, the experts in the field. But, um, so uh, what were we saying? Getting back to the original question, I guess, I guess just speaking to the overall societal impact of immunizations oh, right, yeah, and herd immunity. Yeah. And herd immunity is something that is 
I guess, up there with, you know, new hot phrases that people are saying next to right. social distancing. And um, so what's yeah. what's herd immunity in a nutshell? Yeah, so herd immunity is basically the idea that it's ultimately like multiple layers of protection. So it's not just the fact that I personally am immunized against polio that makes it so I don't get polio. The other reason I'm not going to probably get polio in my lifetime is because there's no polio in the United States because so many people have been immunized against it for so long that basically it died out. It is not, you know, and, and it helps that there's no like animal reservoir for it. Like that's the problem with the flu is like mm-hmm. it can also, and I mean, that was the thing with coronavirus. It was living in like bats. Yeah. And so like there are some things that are hard because they, you know, they will always be around. Like we can't eradicate the flu because it mutates very quickly, which is why you have to get a different flu shot every year. And also it can, it can live in sort of like, it can hide out in animal vectors and, and kind of come out. And, and it, that's when it becomes a problem is when it goes from just going from animal to animal, when it goes to then from animal to person, and it makes that mutation. But, you know, stuff like polio, for example, where um, we can make sure that um, enough people are protected, that it doesn't have a, a reservoir of where it hangs out, then it dies out, it goes away. Um, and, you know, that smallpox is gone. There's no natural smallpox in the world anymore, um, essentially because of herd immunity. Like, enough people were immunized against it that it didn't have anywhere to go. So, like, now something like um, the measles or, or chickenpox, which is a little harder to get rid of, partly because, like, you know, for example, like, you and I, like, we had the chicken, as we talked about earlier, we both had the chickenpox when we were kids. Like, it's still with us. Like, it, it, so this is, um, it lives with us. It actually lives in the, in the roots of your spinal nerves in your back. Um, it just hangs out there. It's asleep. It's not doing anything, but it's still there. And at some point at, when we get older, um, it may pop up again. That's when people talk about like shingles. That's what that is. It's the chickenpox coming back. So um, that's going to also be hard to eradicate too. Maybe at some point 50 years from now when, um, when we have enough people who never actually had the chickenpox, it might go away. But anyway, like enough people either, uh, the thing about herd immunity is that it's not just like no, no treat, just like we talked about, like amoxicillin is not 100% effective. Like nothing in the world is 100% effective. Like we try as best we can, but it's for some people, they just didn't have the right immune response or it just didn't work or, you know, their dose was bad or who knows what it was. So the idea is. we are trying to do multiple layers of protection. So certainly individuals have individual protection with their immunization against whatever we're trying to immunize against, polio, for But if, let's say, my dosage of it wasn't that great, the likelihood I'm still going to get it is pretty low because it's not out there because so many other people are immunized against it that there's a very low, or in this case, no prevalence of polio around. So what you, that's the idea is that we are trying to get a whole, just in case someone for whatever reason falls into the cracks of immunization or they, you know, because they've moved around a lot or, or because they um, just couldn't afford care or something like that. Um, they just didn't get it or their dose was bad or who knows what it was. They are sure. still protected because they have this buffer of people around them that are also protected. So the likelihood that it's going to even get transmitted to them is super low. Um, the thing about herd immunity, and that's why it was, you know, you may have heard people kind of talking about like, um, what we, you know, like there was a, there was some controversy or there's some like, well, why aren't we just having everybody go out there and get it so that everybody's just been exposed and we get, we, you know, we take, we take our lumps, we bite the bullet, then it's done. The problem is, um, how you go about acquiring herd immunity. 
you know, in, a, in an ideal way, we would all get herd immunity by enough people being vaccinated so they're protected. Um, and the problem is, like, if you were going to go, like, try to get herd immunity by having, like, 50% of people get coronavirus, the problem is you would overwhelm the medical system with people who are ill. Certainly, a high percentage of people who, and we've seen this already, like, a high percentage of people who were exposed to the coronavirus who actually had a coronavirus infection um, were fine. They maybe didn't even know they had it. Like, that basketball player who was the one who got diagnosed that shut down sort of, like, everything, like, it, it basically sure. after he was yeah. positive, like, all of a sudden there was this, like, um, snowball that like took over that like all of a sudden everything was shut down um, he was going to play that night he was like yeah I felt fine I was I would have gone out and he would have infected like lord knows how many other uh, players on the other yeah. team ball boys, statisticians, the referees yeah. like that, that woman in the front row like and some of those people have thing. a really devastating impact by exactly, exactly. right so that's the thing is there's while the you know the percentage of people who get coronavirus and have something bad happen to them, whether it's admission to the hospital, respiratory failure, needing to be intubated, et cetera, et cetera, is pretty low. But the thing about math and percentages is the higher your base is, you know, so like if we only had, let's say, the state of Indiana, so, you know, however, I should actually know how many millions of people live in Indiana, but like, let's say it's, you know, like, I think it's like three or four million people. Sure. Like if, you know, like, so let's say, only like 10,000 people in Indiana had coronavirus. If only 1% of those people has has something bad happen from it, well, 1% of 10,000 is 100. 100 people we can handle with ventilators, hospital space, etc. If all 5 million people in Indiana got coronavirus basically at once, 1% of that is 500,000 people. We or uh, fifty thousand people. Sorry, we don't have the space to handle them all at once. So that's really sort of the that's really the problem where that's really the biggest problem with sort of a herd immunity all at once from natural exposure comes into a problem is you have no control of how bad it's it's like setting a fire. Like ideally, they would want to set a controlled fire so that we yeah. could like get rid of the the you know we can we can take care of this area that's a problem, but like keep it under control. But as we see oftentimes, controlled burns end up becoming wildfires and and wrecking havoc across the country. Yeah, and I remember, I know that you know Dr. Runko and he was just recently on the pod. I mean, he, he and I were kind of talking about this and he was um, explaining it to me and he said, can you like imagine if you got a vaccine that we said is like 80% effective? Those are pretty good odds, right? But if you're in a community where nobody else has that that vaccine versus a community where everybody else has that 80% effective vaccine, you're a lot more safe in the community surrounded by people, you know, that also have the vaccine that's 80% effective versus, you know, being around a bunch of people that possibly could have, let's just say, smallpox. Um, exactly. And so, you know, because I, you know, hear people say or, you know, read people um, saying that, well, if my child is not vaccinated, that's my choice. And that's only impacting my child. But I mean, what, what, what do you say to that? Not does that not making the choice to not vaccinate your child impact more than just your child? It, well, and it does. And that's part of um, the dance that you have to dance is, you know, it's, you know, in the end, you can't, 
you know, someone doesn't care about other people, you can't sort of make them do that. You can try to appeal to that. And I think that's, um, I think the vast, vast majority of people in the, in the country and in the world sort of have at least some degree of like neighborly societal, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do things that are right because, you know, I know other people are doing things right. And, and honestly, we've seen that even with things like the social distancing and people kind of staying at home, yeah. you know, that's not necessarily the thing that makes the news or the things that trend on Twitter or Instagram or something. But like the what they really looked at when they surveyed people is the vast majority of people have said, you know what, this is important and I'm going to do this for myself and my neighbors and my grandma and my friend's grandma. Um, and so I think most people do do that. But, you know, we also live in a free society and, mm-hmm. and people are allowed to make their own choices. And so I don't, um, well, it, 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 it makes me a teeny bit sad if people are like, nope, I'm only worried about me and I'm not worried about everybody else, you know, um, in the end, you know, they're, they're allowed to make their own choice and, sure. and I'm going to try to appeal to their, their generous human spirit. But, you know, in the end, they're, they're allowed to make their own choice. But that does become like the hard part is where is the tipping up point of like how much is if enough people don't care about this, when does it fall apart? And to be honest, that's what we've seen with measles and mumps. Now, the hard part with mumps is the vaccine is not quite as actually mumps is a great example. So mumps is a vaccine that is probably only about 80 percent effective. Um, and so if you have high rates of vaccination, the likelihood of a mumps outbreak is a lot lower, but we've seen mumps outbreaks all across the country pretty much every year Mm -hmm. because the vaccine rate for MMR is going down. So if we can get that up higher, even though the vaccine is not sort of quite as good as say the hepatitis B vaccine, which is like 90% effective, 99% effective, or, or the chickenpox vaccine or something, um, it's certainly, we would have less mumps outbreaks if you know, more people were just getting it to kind of keep it at, you know, to kind of increase that herd immunity. So, yeah. you know, I try to appeal to their sort of better natures, but in the end, you know, it's a free society and people are allowed to choose. Um, and in the end, um, there's nothing wrong with like looking out for yourself. And, and, and it, it kind of gets back to what you were talking about before. If, if people, to me, there's a difference between the families that I come across who are just like, I'm not giving vaccines. Why? I don't know. I just don't want to, but <laughs> versus, you know, I've I've thought about it, I've done this, I've looked at that, you know, we may not come to the same conclusions, but if you've at least sort of like done the work and, and, and put in your own effort, you know, in the end, I can't really begrudge that because all you're doing is trying to do the best that you can to take care of your child. And and ultimately, that's what I want too. we're going to come at it from different perspectives. Um, and different ways, but certainly I've seen that when I want somebody to go to see, you know, get assessed by First Steps, which is Indiana's early intervention program for developmental delays. When I'm worried that your child's not speaking when they're 18 months, but the family is like, no, a little, you know, dad was like that too, and his brother Johnny was like that, and his sister, like, they'll be fine. Well, like, I, I don't know if they're going to be fine, and it probably wasn't fine that you know your your husband didn't didn't uh um you know didn't speak till he was three they probably should have done something about that but you know in the end uh, you know we come to a discussion about it and there's lots of places where we end up disagreeing and you know i recommend one thing but they you know they decide to go another and and in the end i i i can't force people to do stuff unless it's extreme circumstances and um i sort of have to give people the best information that i can and 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 ultimately i find that the the vast vast majority of families um, care about their kids and want to make sure their kids are well protected. It's just, you know, we're coming at it from a slightly different angle. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today and answering all of my, you know, questions. This was super helpful and I hope helpful for our listeners. Definitely, you know, working in oncology and even specifically so with our stem cell kids. Um, I've looked at immunizations in a different light and what that means for um, all different types of families. I know that parents have lots of questions about it. um, And I think it's great to have um, a a partner in raising your child with your, with your pediatrician. And it sounds like you, you do that work with your family. So that's really great. And, um, thanks for your time. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all your knowledge. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day and it was really enjoyable and, and, you know, I oh, you asked a lot of really good questions and you, uh, I think you were, uh, you're doing a lot of good work for the families that you work with and, and beyond that of who your listeners are, that uh, maybe families that you've never touched before. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate right. it. Of course. All have right. a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.